0: You could join us this morning. Uh, If you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, that's where we'll be today. We'll finish our study of the book of Hebrews uh, today in large part, so that's where we'll be. Uh, This afternoon, I know a lot of you will be watching football. Some of you may be watching this guy. His name is Aaron Rodgers, and arguably, he's one of the better players that you're going to see today if you're watching watching football. He is an extraordinary, talented guy. But I ran across this quote that I found really interesting for somebody who is one of our best and brightest quarterbacks in the NFL. He says this. He says, I love being coached. I love talking football with smart coaches. I love the input, the dialogue, the conversation. His head coach says, Aaron is really a good student. He wants to be coached and he likes to be coached hard interesting here's another guy some of you recognize him his name is Steph Curry that's what he does for a living he gets paid a lot of money to do that right there he's probably one of the best players if not the best player in the NBA right now also a guy really smart top of his game and one of his coaches says he's the most educable player I've ever known both in terms of his willingness to listen and in his ability to absorb and execute Two extraordinarily coachable players right at the top of their game. Uh, An interesting left, both of them profess to follow Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us, I guess. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, show of hands, played sports at one point in your life? Competitive sports, just show of hands. All right, lots of you played sports. Let me ask you a question. Would you have been considered by your coach highly coachable would you have been considered highly coachable when you were playing sports it's a good question but let me ask an even better question would any of our leaders here at the church consider you highly coachable what about you here are you teachable Highly coachable. Um, Would any of our leaders say of you, he or she wants to be coached? They like to be coached hard. Well, in the book of Hebrews today, as we close out our teaching in that book, that is one of the central questions that he's pressing us with. In verse 7, it simply says this, remember your leaders... Those who spoke you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He closes the book with this strong exhortation to be teachable, to be coachable, not just once, but he's gonna do it twice. If you skip down 10 more verses, he brackets his closing teaching with basically the same idea. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's look at that together, see if we can make some sense out of it after we pray. All right, bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us now. Forgive us our pride and our arrogance that makes us not want to submit to anything. And replace it with the humility that wants to submit to you, your teaching, and the leaders that you gift to us. So have mercy on us now. Let your word kind of reshape our hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in chapter 13, he is making in explicit what the book has been teaching kind of uh, theologically all, all along. He's urging this little suffering church not to turn back from Christ when it's hard. And the lyrics that we sang before of Matt Papas summarize this teaching really well. Keep running, keep running, don't look back, don't give up now, don't turn around. You've got to find a way somehow. Keep reaching, keep fighting. The pain cannot compare to the reward um, that will be yours, that waits in store for those who just keep running. And the writer of Hebrews in this section is saying that one of the keys to you being able to keep running and be found faithful, even when it's hard, is that you would submit to your leaders, that you would follow their teaching. Um, So in verse seven, it starts this way. Remember your leaders, those who spoke you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So remember, consider and imitate and probably in this verse he's looking at leaders that used to be there in this amongst this church they no longer are verse 17 it's their present leaders but in this verse he's probably looking back to leaders who had been involved in their life before mentoring them teaching the word of God to them so let me let me ask you to think about that who are your past leaders that taught the word of God to you and shaped you. Maybe it's a former pastor or a teacher or someone who discipled you in the faith. Um, If I gave you, and I'm going to in just a minute, that little Mr. Rogers 10-second break, to think about someone who influenced you, who would you think of? Someone from your past. What did they teach you? But not just what they teach you, What did they model for you so that you can imitate them? So, go ahead and take 10 seconds to remember someone from your past who taught and and modeled the Word of God to you. I'll, I'll watch the time. Okay, go ahead. All right. I think we all have people like that who God used in our lives, Um, but we could go even farther back. As Christians, there are people throughout the centuries of Christianity who have written their thoughts, taught the scriptures in ways that, know it or not, they shape us even to this day. Um, Think of some of these kind of names with me uh, from thousands of years of, of church history. Augustine, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Pascal, Wilberforce, Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis. And if you're listening to those names and you're saying, who? Then it could be really valuable for you to read about some of your um, forebearers, some of those who've gone before you and shaped our faith. And here's a really helpful first step into that. Okay, this this month is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, okay? And some of you are saying, the what? And in that case, I have a deal for you. You need to read this. This website, it's called Desiring God, and they are offering a daily devotional that introduces every day this month to one of the key players in the Protestant Reformation. So you'll meet people like, Uh, John Huss and John Wycliffe, and you'll meet um, Martin Luther. You'll meet Philip Melanchthon, and lots of people whose teaching and ideas have shaped the faith that we embrace this day. Um, So this guy's name is John Huss. He's from the Czech Republic. He lived in the late 1300s. And there was an awakening going on that time that would turn into the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door on October 31st, 500 years ago. Um, But this was kind of a forerunner and he was increasingly troubled by the corruption of the church and the corruption of the Pope who claimed to be the head of the church. And so his contention was that because men are fallible and corrupt, there's only one head for the church, and that is Jesus Christ. And that got him arrested and imprisoned, and um, he he was a remarkable man. He He was taken to his cell, and many came and pled with him to recant, to change his teachings so that he could be set free. And on July 6th, 1415, he was taken to the cathedral, He was dressed in his priestly garments, for he was a priest. But then he was stripped of them one by one. He refused a last chance to recant at the stake. And on the stake he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray to you to have mercy on my enemies. And as the flames engulfed him, he was heard reciting the Psalms. Remember consider, imitate those who have gone before you and taught you the word. And you'll find, if you go to this website, you can go to North Wake's webpage, click on our leader blog, which you should already have subscribed to, and it'll, it'll hook you up with this uh, devotional for this month. It'll, it'll be tremendously insightful for you. So verse eight, he says all of these things, and then he says, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the same as he was in the lives of Luther and Calvin and Wesley. Same Jesus. All those who've gone before us, we serve and follow the same worthy Christ that they sacrificed and suffered to follow. Same God. You know, that, that simple verse is probably worthy of a, s- a series of sermons. But Professor David Allen summarizes it well. He says this verse implies at least three truths about Jesus. The divinity of Christ, that is that he is God. The immutability of Christ, that he does not change. And the fidelity of Christ to his people, that is that he is constantly faithful to us, because our Christ is unchanging, he goes on and he says in verse 9, um, not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, that is, by Christ's grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So, evidently, some were being tempted to return perhaps to their Jewish heritage and to the temple meals that were served there as a way of strengthening and sanctifying them. And he's saying, no. No, because Jesus is unchanging, it is his teaching that we are to adhere to, not some strange new angle or insight that points you anywhere but Christ. I remember sitting in a a graduate seminar when I was in seminary and one of the guys in the room was talking about how he really wanted to do breakthrough theology, you know. I wanna do breakthrough. No, you don't want to do breakthrough theology. You don't want to come up with something new about God that nobody's known him to be or worshipped him for thousands of years now. You want to be a faithful theologian to the scriptures that aligns with the history of the teaching of the great saints of the church. Professor Allen again says that the writer of Hebrews is at pains to argue that God's grace is not mediated through meal regulations. Whether normal everyday household meals or the ritual meals of the temple, Rather, the heart is strengthened by the grace of God extended through Christ, God's final high priest and his final and complete atonement on the cross. So, when we take the Lord's Supper at the end of our time, it's not any more spiritual for you to take the gluten-free communion bread than regular, okay? It's not about the food. It's not about the bread. It's about Christ Christ. The gluten-free communion bread is just there to keep our people who suffer from celiac disease from getting wretchedly sick because they took the Lord's Supper. Nothing spiritual about it, okay? It's not about the food. He says, it's only about Christ. He is our hope and our satisfaction. Then he's gonna turn and he's gonna tell us why we ought not hope anywhere else. Don't hope in any food, don't hope in any ritual, don't hope in any guru or system or politician or doctor or banker. Hope in Christ, he says. And you can probably, if you've been studying the book of Hebrews with us, you can guess why he's gonna say we should hope in Christ. I'll give you a hint. It's on the back wall, right there. Big letters, because Jesus is greater. He's greater than any other source of hope. Verse 10, he starts talking about that to us. He says, we have an altar, that is Christ, which those who serve the tent, the old Jewish system of sacrifice, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, this is the Old Testament sacrifices, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's saying again, Jesus is greater than that system. Don't go back to it, Jesus is a greater altar, a better sacrifice, better than that which was offered in the Old Testament. And when he talks about these animals being taken outside the camp and their bodies burned there, he's talking about a specific day called the Day of Atonement. It was the holiest of days when the high priest would go in to the holy place and he would offer a sacrifice there to atone for the people's sins. The people, um, for them to be brought even symbolically or temporarily into God's presence under that system, every part of the tabernacle had to be ritually cleansed since nothing defiled could be employed in man's approach to a holy god. So on the day of atonement, the high priest would would offer a sacrifice and he would enter the holy of holies with that blood and he would pour it on the mercy seat between the cherubim. And then Leviticus 16 describes that ritual. In particular, it describes what happens after that. Look at verse 27 in Leviticus 16. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp there you hear the language of hebrews right the bodies are going to be carried outside the camp their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp okay so Again, Dr. Allen says that outside the city gate locates the place where Jesus was crucified, namely outside Jerusalem. The phrase implies the rejection of Jesus by the Jews and his being condemned as a criminal. The area where Israel camped during the wilderness wandering was considered holy, but the area outside the camp was considered unholy. So that when someone ventured outside the camp, they had to be ceremonial cleansed in order to return. And so Hebrews says, just as they took those, those animal bodies outside of the camp and burned them there, Jesus was outside of the city of Jerusalem's gates when he offered up his life as an eternal sacrifice so that no more, no more sacrifices are required. Okay. He offered his life up. He is greater. He fulfills all that those day of atonement sacrifices were pointing to towards Um, everything that goes on Jesus clearly is greater now there's another guy that you'll learn about this month if you read that those devotions on on that desiring God site that you can get at our web his name is John Wycliffe um, and he lived in the late 1300s and this is what he said he said trust God Holy in Christ, rely together on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. And that from the man who's principally responsible for the translation of our English Bible so that we have the word in English. But make no mistake about it, Jesus suffered there outside the city gates. He was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was beaten and he was nailed to a tree. He suffered there the ultimate rejection as he became unclean and took our sin on himself. Now, listen closely to what the writer of Hebrews says to us next. It's of the utmost importance in this next verse. Therefore, he says, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured he is saying be ready and willing to suffer with christ this little band of believers that were hebrews that he was writing to they had suffered greatly some were in prison some had had their property taken away he urges them remember your teachers remember the life that they lived before you He says the same to us. Remember men like John Huss who prayed for their persecutors while they were being burned at the stake. Don't quit. Don't turn back. Don't give in. Keep following Christ. But most of all, he says, remember Jesus who suffered and died outside the city, rejected and mocked, just like all those bloody animal sacrifices that pointed to him. Remember Jesus' suffering there on that tree and follow him faithfully. Don't turn back. Follow him into suffering outside the camp. If you're rejected, if you're despised, if you're mistreated, if they mock you, don't turn back. If they belittle you, don't turn back. If they reject you, if they fire you, if they dismiss you, if they overlook you, if they beat you unto death, he says, follow Jesus. Don't turn back. He says it's because, in verse 14, we have a lasting city. He says here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Suffer now, glory later, okay? And we get that flipped sometimes. Suffer now to follow Christ, glory later. That's the way of Jesus. That's what awaits those who follow him. It's often been said, we follow a crucified Messiah, and that's so true. But we also follow a crucified Messiah who was raised on the third day, who ascended to the right hand of God, the Almighty, and he reigns there. Don't shrink back. It's worth it. He is worth it. Here and now, we will all suffer when we follow Christ. But there is coming a city promised to us by God where there's no more suffering, no more tears, no more sickness. Suffer with him now. Take up your cross daily now. He is worth it. He is worth it. And he says, verse 15, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Continually, continual praise. And John Piper wisely says that perhaps the most important thing about that word continual is that it means praise God continually through good times and bad times. Wherever our pilgrim journey takes us, he says, life does not consist of praise God times and criticize God times. There are only praise God times. It doesn't mean there are no tears. It doesn't mean there are no perplexities about the way God works, but it does mean that through tears and through unanswered questions, we will praise our God. We will speak well of him. And we sing about that. We often will sing, blessed be your name. When the sun is shining down on me, when the world is all as it should be, Be blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. We will follow you, Jesus, outside of the city to the place of suffering and bear your reproach with you. Continually, in good times and bad because our city is yet future. Okay. Perhaps one of the best examples I can think of of this is our sister Jen. Um, you know, she was incarcerated in an African prison um, about a year ago for, what was it, it was about four to six months, I think she was in there. Um, it's not a happy place. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Because... She's not living for this city. She's living for that city, for an eternal city. Um, so, he says, in light of all that, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, okay? Because we're not living for this city, we don't have to stockpile things. We don't have to hoard We are free to be generous with what little we have. He's writing to a persecuted, suffering people, and he says, don't forget to share. They didn't have a lot, probably. Don't forget to share. See, that hope and promise of a future city frees us to be generous to those perhaps in greater need than us. In this city saw so a great example of this. There was a, in southern Indiana uh, a while back, there was a it was Father's Day at a McDonald's there. And this lady, her name is uh, Hunter Hostetler. She looks in her rearview mirror and she sees this dad behind her. He's got, she says, he's got like four kids in the car, had a bunch of Happy Meals, two Quarter Pounders, a Big Mac meal and some other stuff. And she says, I'm gonna pay for the father behind me and tell him I said, Happy Father's Day. Okay. And so... Touched by the kindness, that guy decides to pay for a couple of the cars behind him. And then they decide to pay for the ones behind him. And this goes on from 8.30 p.m. until midnight, until they closed the McDonald's. 167 people paid for the people who came behind them. 167 people. And we are free to be those people, even though we have little Because we're living for a different city. You know, believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are suffering greatly. We talked about this last week. I showed you the top 10 countries in the world that are persecuting Christians. And uh, we prayed for three of the top three of those, um, North Korea, um, Somalia, and Afghanistan, uh, last Sunday night at our corporate prayer meeting. Are you able to share with them? Are you living in anticipation of that future city so that you can be generous now? Or are you living in debt up to your ears so that you can live in luxury in this city? You know, have you, have you sent any aid to help the suffering in Puerto Rico? We have missionaries there who are on the ground doing the work. The island is wiped out, and they tell us the church is rebuilding this island. And they need our help. Are you in a place where you can help? You know, Syria was number six on that watch list of persecuted countries last week. Uh, There are five million refugees from Syria streaming into Europe and other places. There are um, 10,000 of them in the United States. About half a million or more of those are likely our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you helped any of the refugees? Can you you meet them in their time of need and share your resources because you're free? You don't have to worry. You're not living for luxury in this city. You said no to some things, to bigger and better and newer always so that you can live for that city. And then here comes the bookend to his teaching today in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So this teaching has something to say to you and it has something to say to me as a leader and those like me let me start with you what does it have to say for you well it says you are to obey your leaders and submit to them it is a command of God did you know that was a command of God and right away some of you are thinking but what about but what about what if Larry goes nuts on us And he says we're supposed to pay for a private jet so we can do all this traveling. Pastors have done this in other places, you know. Um, Well, let me ease your mind. I have no intention of asking for a private jet. But if I did, it says that you're supposed to obey those who teach the word, okay? And if I or any of our leaders deviate from teaching the word, then that greatly neuters this command, doesn't it? but what does it mean when our leaders ask something that is profoundly biblical of you? When our elders, for instance, when our elders call us to gather for prayer at our corporate prayer meeting, how how should you respond to that in light of this? So, obey your leaders and submit to them it says you are to obey and submit to our shepherding in a way that gives us joy your job is to make me a really happy pastor um what is that like what would that be like well I think are you a parent then go with that, okay? You know the kind of obedience your kids do that gives you joy, right? What do you call it? First-time obedience, right? Isn't that what you call it? Um, But seriously, people who receive the word in faith and even though it asks something hard of them, they are willing to obey it. These people are joy bringers to us, to your leaders, You know, people who come here and they sit under a sermon as though it were the words of God brought to them faithfully. And when it is, they receive it gladly. Rather than sitting to critique the sermon. Those former people are joy bringers to us. I ran across a guy who really exemplified this for me. His name was Leslie Weatherhead. You've probably never heard of Leslie. um, But you may have heard of John Stott. He's one of, a tremendous Christian pastor and author from from Great Britain, from the United Kingdom. And uh, he published a book in 1971 called Basic Christianity that was a profound discipling tool through this day. It's a great read if you you want to read something on uh, discipleship, tremendous, helpful book. Leslie Weatherhead wrote this letter to John Stott upon the publication of that book. He said, Dear John, thank you for writing Basic Christianity. It led me to make a new commitment of my life to Christ. I am old now, nearly 78, but not too old to make a new beginning. I rejoice in all the grand work you are doing. Yours sincerely, Leslie Weatherhead. Now, Leslie Weatherhead at that time was one of the most respected and influential Christian leaders in the United Kingdom. Thousands would come to hear him preach at City Temple. His books were read widely. He pioneered in the field of pastoral counseling. He was president of the United Kingdom's Methodist Conference. Yet at 78 years old, he was not too proud to be coachable. And just as an aside, I can say this because most of them are not in here, but we have a number of professors who are in our church from the seminary, and they exemplify this kind of humility. They, they could shred every one of my sermons in Greek and Hebrew and half a dozen other languages, but they come to hear and to sit under the teaching of the word and to learn. And we are blessed by their uh, humble example. So do this in a way, allow me to do this to shepherd you in a way that brings me joy, makes, makes me happy, that's how. It also says you're not to do it in a way that causes your leaders to groan What would that be like? Well, are you a parent? Um, Anyway, you know, we groan, your leaders groan when people resist the word and our counsel to obey it and they think they know better than all 12 of our elders. That makes us groan. We groan when people think they are exceptional and that the word really does not apply to them in their present situation. That makes us groan. We groan when people blame others and do not take responsibility for their own sinful choices. Men, I'll say this to you and husbands, when you do this to your family, it is doubly maddening to us as your leaders. Um, So that's for you, but it also has something to say to me and to all of us who lead in this church. We are to rightly handle the word of God. We are to teach the word of God to you. Nothing else, nothing less. And this is a sobering, bordering on terrifying task, to stand up before you and speak for God. We are to live lives worth imitating. This is beyond bordering on terrifying. This is terrifying. Because we're supposed to be able to strive to say, hey, work like me, parent like me, do marriage like me, repent like me, pray like me. Those are daunting things. We are to shepherd those entrusted to us, mindful that we will give an account to a thrice holy God one day for each one under our care. So we are to pursue in love and shepherd Rebuke, care, and love for each one. I think you get a good sense for why then in the very next verse, the first three words are the next are are, are these in verse 18. Pray for us. Pray for your leaders. I, I hope you will. But I hope you get a sense too of how vital this is. For those of us who lead the church, those of you who lead with me. Um, that you are faithful to Christ and to his scriptures, that you are near to him, so that the love that he shares with you, you pass on to the church under our care. It is essential that you walk closely with Christ in submission to his word. And for those of you who are just our church, our church family, um, You are here called to suffer with Christ and while you are doing that, to continually praise him and to be generous and ready to share with others. And one of the great enablements God has given to you are your leader's teaching of the word of God and your coachability, right? That you wanna be coached and you wanna be coached hard. So pray for us. Pray for us. And so what I'd like to do would be just give you just a few minutes to pray. And the church, if you would pray for me and for our leaders, you know some of our leaders, your small group leader, our other elders, other men who teach in your life change class, our women's ministry leaders, if you would pray for us silently. And those of you who are in leadership with me, this is a time for us to pray for the church that they would be able to fill these challenging instructions given to them by God in Hebrews chapter 13. So let me invite you all, just take a few seconds, we'll pray silently for one another. Bow with me, please, let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Sweep away our pride and our arrogance that makes us not want to submit to anything, and replace it with a humility that believes you can even you can even bring your truth to us through these broken vessels that are our leaders. Lord, help those of us who lead to lead not just in words but with our lives. Help us, Lord, to shepherd and lead these amazing people that you've entrusted to our care. And Lord, infuse us all with a kind of coachability, a willingness to be coached, to learn, to remember and consider and to imitate, to obey and even to submit. For Christ is worthy. We recognize that this is your kindness to us as we follow him even in even mid-suffering. We pray these things in his great and matchless name. Amen. As we close our service today, we want to remember Jesus in the fashion that he taught us to. And we'd like to come to the communion table and have communion with our Lord to meet with him here. And uh, it's a privilege for everyone who is a follower of Jesus and who is walking with him in fellowship. And so if that describes you, you're welcome at this table. Um, but I, I think often this table is a good place for us to recalibrate. You know, during the week, sometimes we've gotten off track with God. We've just been running so hard, we've forgotten about him, we've run ahead of him all week. And now we're reminded We are to follow. We're Christ's followers, not Christ's leaders. Sometimes during the week we have simply wandered off and loved something we ought not love, said something we shouldn't have said, done something we shouldn't have done, and we we need a grace. As we sang earlier, we need a grace that is greater than our sin. And this table is the great reminder of that, that Jesus is our better altar, that he by his blood, he has purchased us for God. And oh, that we would never forget that, that we would remember his body broken and his blood poured out for us. So bow with me now. and Let's just take a moment and ready ourselves to come to the table in worship of Christ. Okay. Jesus, we remember you now. Remember the... Length and breadth and height and depth of your love for us. And we affirm again, we want to follow you wherever you lead. On the road of suffering, when the offering is painful, yes, Lord. And so as we come to this table, we we reassert your lordship in our lives and we say again, we love you, we thank you, we honor you, we remember you, and we will follow you by your grace. And so we remember together that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he explained that this cup contained the new covenant in his blood, which was poured out for the, for the forgiveness of many. And so as we take it, we remember and delight in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. May he get all the glory. Amen.